Well, good morning, church. If you haven't already, uh, turn with us to that passage that Micah just read, Galatians 1. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 24 today. I'm really excited that we're in Galatians. Um, Daniel was asking me yesterday, like, what is my favorite book of the Bible? And Galatians is definitely up there. It's one of my, one of my favorites. Um, I love Paul's passion in this, in this letter that he's writing. It, as Daniel was saying last week, it definitely stands out amongst his other letters. Um, he doesn't waste. He doesn't spend any time with any traditional Thanksgiving or anything like that, like he does with most of his other letters. Instead, he gets right into it, like Daniel was saying last week. I had a Bible professor in college that, whenever he talked talked about whatever it was, whatever he was teaching us about history of, of the New Testament things like that, whenever he came to talking about Paul and Galatians, he loved. He'd always get really excited. He'd be like, he like Paul writes Galatians, and he's just hot. He is steamed. He's so upset, and you can just see the passion coming from this passage. Um, when we, when we read Galatians, I, I love it. Um, some of this that I'm going to be talking about in this intro is going to be a little bit repetitive, repetitive from the last couple of weeks, but I really think it's important as we continue to study this passage or this, this book that we all have keep a clear understanding and clear idea of what the context of what Paul is saying is, because it's really important to be able to really draw from this text to really be able to, um, draw the truths from this text. It's really important to know what was motivating Paul in writing this and why was he writing this? You know, it's really important to know that one thing that Daniel mentioned a couple weeks ago is Galatians is probably, um, in terms of like when it was written, probably the oldest book in the New Testament. Um, it was probably one of the first letters, first epistles that gets written. It was written before the gospels as far as history suggests. Um, it was one of the first books written, and, and Paul wrote it actually, in, if you look at the book, if you've studied the book of Acts, you know that Paul went on three different missionary journeys. And this is going to be, this was written shortly after his first journey. And in his first journey, he specifically went into Galatia and went to several cities in Galatia and spent months as, as he was basically going from city to city, preaching the gospel and establishing churches. And then as he came back, he, he, he cared so much about the church that actually when he started to return, he actually went back and visited each church again on his way back to where his home base was in Antioch, Syria. And the way history suggests is that it wasn't very long. The reason why Paul is probably so fired up about this message and when he writes this letter is you have to understand, after spending all that time preaching the gospel, after spending all that time um, establishing these churches, it's probably, not just a, it's probably only a couple months later that word starts to come to Paul about these Judaizers that have gone behind him to these churches and started to spread this false gospel. And not only are they spreading it, but the Galatians are buying into it. They're literally coming in and they're saying, hey guys, it's great that you now believe in Jesus, you Gentiles. Like, the, like and you gotta understand, like Jewish people and Gentiles, they didn't associate, all right? So these Jewish Christians are already kind of apprehensive, or at least they claim to be Christians. These Jewish so-called Christians are already apprehensive about accepting these Gentiles. So when they come into these places and they, they have a distorted gospel, they're basically saying, guys, it's great that you, you, know, you, you know Jesus now and that you believe in Jesus. You know, Paul's message was great, but it wasn't complete. There's something more that you guys need to do. So here's what we're going to do. Men, why don't you line up right here? Don't be afraid of that guy with that sharp knife over there. No big deal. You're just going to be like, you know, sealed for your faith now. Um, and 
Also, there's this whole list of rules, you know, then this mosaic, the mosaic law. You guys got to start following all these rituals, these cleansings. This is really important stuff. If you're really going to be saved, this is all requirements as part of the gospel message. So what we read in Galatians is Paul basically hearing this news, and he's pretty steamed. He's pretty upset. That's why when Daniel's passage that he preached on last week, he's saying, I am so astonished. He says, how quickly. It, it's, it's, it hasn't been that long. I, mean, I want you to think about it for a second. If Daniel decided this month that, hey, I got, I got to leave, guys. Like, I got some other calling. I got to go do this, you know. So he, heads up, so he just leaves, you know, and, me, and you're stuck with me and Will. Sorry. Uh, you know, and... Imagine Daniel comes back in September. It's only been a summer. And he comes back and he finds that the mountain church is now teaching and preaching and believing in the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, the idea that, you know, the only real reason to believe, the reason you believe in Jesus is so that he can bless you here in this world. And that your, your faith in Jesus is judged by how well you're being blessed here in this life. Now imagine Daniel comes back to that. What do you think his reaction is going to be? I've only seen Daniel angry a few times in my life. But I have a feeling me and Will would experience a whole new side of his anger. And as, as, as almost ridiculous as that sounds, understand that's as ridiculous as it is in Paul's mind. That he is gone. He spent, all these, he spent time with these people establishing these churches. And so quickly, they've already like, let, let themselves believe something else. And last week, we, see as, we, we saw as Daniel was preaching, Paul's so fired up, he's saying, I'm so quickly astonished. And in his message that Daniel preached about declaring there's no other gospel but the one that I preached, Paul is so certain on what he's saying, that he makes this statement that, Paul, that Daniel mentioned last week, that if anyone would come and say, preach to you a different gospel, even if it was an angel, let them be accursed. Can you imagine how much confidence you have to have to be able to say something like that? You know, we, we talk a lot about, uh, like, at least not we, but like some people like to sometimes talk about like what does righteous anger look like, you know, as, as a way to kind of justify when you can get angry. You know, like, like what is, because Jesus was angry in the temple. He clears out the tables and the moneylenders because they're like, they're, they're just, you know, perverting his temple, the temple of the Lord. And so, you know, we see righteous anger in that case. Like, what does righteous anger, you know, look like? I'm not an expert about righteous anger, but I have a feeling that if, if it's going to truly be righteous anger, you've got to be 100% right about what you're saying in God's eyes, that what you're, what you're upset about is something that God would be upset about because it's 100% against what he stands for and what he believes in. And in this case, that's basically why Paul's so angry, is because he sees this and he's saying, like, guys, this is it. This is the only thing. And I'm saying it with such confidence. I'm saying that even if an angel is standing next to me and I'm preaching you the gospel that I taught, and this angel is saying, no, it's actually this, I'm right, the angel's wrong. It takes a lot of confidence to be able to say something like that. And so after saying that, we get into this passage that we're going to be talking about today because really then the natural question that comes out of saying something like that is, well, like, what makes you so sure, Paul? Why are you so confident? 
How can you know what you're saying to be true? How do you know that you got it right? Why should we believe that, you're the, that you got it right? So that's where we're at with this passage today. And we're going to dive in. We've been talking through these five questions as, we, as, we're, as we're walking through these different passages in Galatians. So we first look at what does the text say. And Daniel mentioned this last week. One of the things I really like about the fact that Paul's kind of fired up is that he doesn't mince words. There's no real like trying to like uncover like, oh, what is the sentence really saying? He's pretty direct in what he's saying. So that when he starts off this passage in verse 11, and he says, for I would have you know, brothers, because he's talking about this, he just said there's no other gospel, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, meaning it was not something conceived by a man. For I did not receive it from any, any man, nor when I taught it, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. These first two verses are pretty much the foundation of what we're going to be talking about today when we read this passage. And when, and when, when we look at what it says, it's, it's interesting that Paul uses three negatives to emphasize what he is saying. He says, this was not man's gospel, meaning it was not something conceived by man. This wasn't something that I received by a man that someone just told me about. No person told me about this. It wasn't like, you know, some disciple. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't Peter. It wasn't anybody telling me about this. It wasn't even something I was taught. I wasn't studying under anybody. I didn't spend time, like, you know, doing all the research and really learning about what the gospel was. He says, no, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Meaning it came directly from Jesus, guys. I heard it from his mouth. And then as we look at the rest of what, the, what he, where he goes from there, he, he goes into his story, get a little bit of his background. He talks in the next couple of verses, he talks about before his conversion, how he was, he was a Jew amongst Jews, and he was like, you know, really advancing in his Judaism, and, and he was so zealous as a Jew that the Jewish way was the only way that when he heard about these Christians, and he heard that they were, you know, spreading this other way, he was so convinced in his, in his faith, in his religion, that he attacked them. He was against them. And he talks about his conversion and how, Jesus, how God changed everything when he revealed his son to him. And then he gets into a little bit about his journey afterwards, about the different places he went and the different people he went. And, it's one, and, and what I want to sum up question one is by this. It's really easy when we read this whole passage together, if you read it all in just one sitting, to just kind of get caught up and just saying, oh, this is just Paul just telling his story. This is Paul just kind of giving a, a brief synopsis of his life. But I want you to understand there's something way more important that Paul is trying to emphasize than just telling his story. Because the reality is he doesn't really have to tell his story to these people. He spent months with them. They know his story. I mean, think about the people that you're in relationship with. Like, I can tell you without a doubt that Carrie grew up in Texas. Or he was in Texas. He also grew up in Ohio for a while during your childhood. You know? And Tony came from Michigan, which is astonishing because nothing good comes from Michigan. Right? <laughs> 
And most of you are laughing right now because you know I'm from Michigan because you've gotten to know me and you know that's also where I came from. We, when, you, when you're in a relationship with people, you, you learn about them. You just kind of, this is one of the default things that kind of happens. And, and if you're, you know, part of this church and there's people in this church that you don't, that you can't say with confidence where they come from, I encourage you, maybe that means you need to get to know them a little bit better, be in a relationship with them, because that's what we're, we're called to do. They knew Paul's story. See, with what this text is saying, it's not just saying, hey, here's Paul's story, like, just in case you guys forgot. What this text is saying, it's re-emphasizing that first point that is being made in those first two verses. It's giving evidence to the fact that this was not something received by man, but it was the gospel received by Jesus Christ. That is Paul's whole point in going into this account. It's emphasizing that this was something I received from Jesus and that's where we're going to go when we dive into question two. What does this text mean? Why is Paul so confident about there being no other gospel? Well, it came from Jesus. I mean, of course he's so confident because he heard it directly from Jesus Christ himself. That's why he's so confident. And Paul makes sure he clearly illustrates his point that this is where I heard it from. I didn't hear it from anybody else. When he goes into verse 13 and 14 and he starts talking about his upbringing and how he, in, in the Jewish faith and stuff, he's basically saying, well, you know I didn't study and learn the gospel then because all I was caring about was the Jewish faith. He probably, like, Paul was probably, he probably had the whole Pentateuch, the first five, verse, five books of the Bible memorized by the time he was like age seven. Okay, that was like the, 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 the elite class of like Jewish students is they had this thing memorized by the age of seven by 12. He probably was able to cite most of the prophets. He, we know he was advancing his faith. So everyone was astonished by what he knew of the Old Testament and of the Jewish faith. He wasn't going to spend time diving into learning the gospel of Jesus because all he knew is that they're preaching a different way. I hate them. But then we also see that once he does come to faith. Once God does call him, what does he do right after? Notice at the end of verse 16, he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul's point is this. It wasn't like I had this encounter with Jesus and then walked away being like, wait, what does that all mean? I need to figure this out. Hey, Peter, can you teach me this stuff? I don't really know. Like, Jesus said this, but I don't, I don't get it. Like, can you help me understand what I'm, what I'm hearing here? Or he didn't have to go out seeking somebody to teach everything to him because he's like, well, Jesus, I, I saw Jesus, so he must be the way, so I need someone to teach me the gospel. There's none of that. Paul doesn't go looking for anybody. Because I did not immediately consult with anybody. He didn't go up to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before him. He went away into Arabia, meaning he went away on his own, spent some time. And then he goes against into Damascus. And we know from the book of Acts, when he returns to Damascus, he's preaching the gospel already. He's already teaching it. And then it continues. He says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. 
It's interesting that Paul puts a timestamp time on that for 15 days. Now, for us, you know, we, you can do a lot in 15 days. You know, I mean, you, you have a family member come visit you for 15 days. That's a, that's a long time. That's a good visit. Sometimes too long. No. <laughs> Depends on the family member. I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, so that's a, that's a good long visit. But you got to understand, like, what, Peter, what, what, what Paul's point is this. When somebody would study under someone in, in that tradition, they would spend years with them. Not just months, they would spend years. Think about the disciples. The disciples spent three years with Jesus. That was a traditional thing if you were going to go learn from somebody. Paul went to go see Peter for 15 days. He wasn't there to learn from him. He wasn't there to like, be like, Peter, can you, can you give me the whole summary synopsis of the, of the gospel? Can you, like, you know, help me out here? I don't really know what I'm talking about. Paul wasn't there to learn from him. He was just there to meet with them. And he even says, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In other words, it was, I, wasn't, I wasn't even there to interview anybody. It wasn't like I was going to Peter and be like, hey, Peter, what did, can you tell me what you, what you remember what you saw? Can you help me out with my facts? Okay, hey, John, can you help me? Hey, Matthew, what do you remember? Paul's not there to interview and gain facts or try to get more information. He was just there to visit Peter. It wasn't meant as anything more than that. And then he says this statement in verse 20, and what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. It's quite a strong statement to actually be making. He's basically trying to say, if anyone should tell you that this gospel I preached was just handed down to me, and therefore I could be a little bit off with my interpretations because it was given to me by another person who taught it to me, that they were tacit on a message. He's saying, no, I didn't spend any time doing that. I was right away preaching the gospel. I only spent 15 days with Peter. And then he says, but I'm ready to you before God, I do not lie. One of the awesome things at the time is when we look at the history, when this letter, would go to the, when this letter was sent to the Galatian churches, not only did they have copies in these churches, but whenever something like was read that, that, that the church, early church knew was like, man, there's something special about this. There's, a, there's some Holy Spirit inspiration going on here. This is inspired by God. Copies were made right away and distributed amongst other churches, other things. Think, we, we, we think this book was probably written about a good 10 years or so before, like um, five to t- at least five to 10 years before like some of the other books of the Bible are getting written. Don't you think it probably would have been passed and Peter might have saw it or heard about it? James probably would have heard about this book, about this letter. Don't you think that if maybe Paul was lying, he might get called out for it? But yet, we know from other passages in Scripture, when Peter writes his letters, he's affirming Paul and Paul's apostleship. I don't think you'd affirm the apostleship of a liar. And finally, he says, he went into the regions of Syria and Galicia. He was still unknown to the church, to the persons, he was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they've glorified God because of me. What that end statement is basically saying is that the gospel that they heard he was preaching aligned with their gospel, and therefore they glorified God because of the gospel that was revealed to Paul from Jesus himself was exactly the same gospel that they had received. The church is affirming Paul's gospel. This gospel that Paul 
didn't receive from any man, received directly from Jesus, the church affirmed as well, yeah, that's the true gospel. So the whole purpose of telling his story isn't for Paul to kind of build himself up and say, hey, remember where I came from, guys? Isn't that an awesome story? The whole purpose of sharing that is to emphasize his point that this gospel came from Jesus. And even in telling his story, it's really important. Another point, another thing to draw out of this text about what it means, he makes the emphasis that God is the acting agent in bringing the gospel and bringing his own salvation. Don't miss that in verses 15 and 16. In verses 15, he says this, but when he, meaning God, who had set me apart before I was born. First thing that Paul acknowledges that God did as the acting agent of bringing the gospel to him is that he chose Paul. God chose Paul before he was even born. That's a special status to have, to be chosen by God. And the next, second thing, says, and who called me by his grace. Who called me by his grace, meaning God is the one calling Paul to salvation, calling him by his grace to salvation, back to right relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. And then the third thing Paul emphasized that he did, says, verse 16, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. God chose Paul. God called Paul. Finally, God revealed to Paul through Jesus that there is a new purpose to Paul's life. Paul's whole life had been based around this idea of being good, following the rules, being the strong Jewish person that stood out amongst other Jews so that he would obtain the status that would be right with God. And then God comes and changes everything because it's God's the acting agent here. God comes, he says, no, I've chosen you for something else, Paul. From before you were even born, you have no idea, but this is what you're really chosen for. He calls him to a right relationship with him through Jesus, and then he tells him, here's your purpose. Not to do all this stuff, you know, for you to try to be good, try to, like, you know, be this person that's holier than thou, that's special amongst everybody else. No, your purpose is to go, and you're going to actually spread my gospel to the Gentiles. You're going to be persecuted, you're going to be hated. You're going to be stoned. But you're going to do this. See, for Paul, God coming and revealing to him the true gospel changes everything. So to kind of conclude, this, what does this text mean we have to emphasize that this gospel, this is the gospel directly from Jesus. The gospel we read in the epistles of Paul that Paul preaches, that Daniel emphasized last week, that salvation is through Christ alone, by faith alone, for his glory alone. That comes directly from Jesus. We can't lose sight of that. We can't lose sight and just tell ourselves, oh, you know, this is just teachings passed down the line, da-da-da. When we read 
scriptures, when we read the word of God, when we see this being outlined, this is directly from Christ. These are his words. It's not Paul's gospel. It's not Paul's teaching of the gospel. It's not Paul's version. It's the gospel directly given to him by Jesus himself. And that changes everything. And that leads us to verse to the question number three of how do we naturally resist it? Because I do think in many ways we end up naturally resisting this idea that uh, when it comes down to the authority of the gospel, when it comes down to the authority of scripture, when it comes down to the authority of Jesus. Because what ends up happening is we tend to value our own teachings, our own understandings of things. We tend to understand our own perceptions and feelings about the, the way that life is. We tend to value our own like influences from different philosophies or different culture, uh, cultural standards. And we don't completely submit to the authority of God. What ends up happening is we kind of resist this idea that even though we might say it, that yeah, Jesus is the ultimate authority, the way we act, the way we believe, the way we talk sometimes communicates that there are other values, there are other things that we are prioritizing just as much, if not more, than the gospel itself, the gospel of Christ. This might come out in the way we, get, we have discussions, whether it be about hot-button cultural issues, political issues, different things like that. But I am in strong belief that one of the reasons why, one of the biggest reasons why um, Christianity is in such decline in the U.S. and Western European countries is because people that claim to be Christians no longer submit to the authority of Christ as being the uttermost ultimate authority. They allow other things to have equal say, if not greater say. Sure, I'll believe in Jesus and the cross, and that's all well and good, but to actually say that, like, you know, I gotta, like, follow along with what he wants me to do, with living the life that he wants me to live, that's a little bit too much. That's a little too imposing. That's a little too infringing. I got my own wants, my own desires that I care about. And I think that also kind of stems from another way that we resist this, which is that we act as though our salvation is something we accomplished. We don't, and I don't want to emphasize that we, the, the, the acting part, because I do believe most of us, and myself included, I struggle with this, not in the fact that if you were to ask me, like, you know, Nathan, how are you saved? Well, you know, I'll affirm verbally all the time that God chose me, that I was, that Jesus is the one who came and saved me. I did nothing of my, my own. I'm not some brilliant guy that just one day came to this awesome revelation of Jesus being the one true way. No, Jesus chose me, called me. I believe that 100%. But the big question is, do our actions show that? In what way are our actions really demonstrating that truth? See, I don't think we think enough about the fact that we were chosen by him, called by him, 
most importantly, have had a new purpose revealed to us by him. We have this new purpose because we were chosen by Christ and we were called to salvation through Christ. We have this new purpose now to live this life declaring the gospel to all those who need to hear it. Demonstrating Christ's love to them. Showing them the one true way to a right relationship with God. That's our new purpose. That that is it. To bring him glory by by obedience to him in this way. By showing the love of God, sharing the gospel. And yet, the way we act demonstrates, I believe, that we still believe we ourselves are pretty important. We, we, we ourselves are, are, are pretty, you know, my, my dreams, my desires come first. You know, so even though we, you, might, you might not admit it, you might not f- say like, oh yeah, that was totally me that, you know, st- accomplished my salvation. Like, I'm the one who believed. I'm the one who like, you know, chose to come to church. I'm the one who, who uh, you know, chooses to raise my family in the church. You might not say that. Well, what are our actions saying? Are our actions saying that we're pretty important? That we're the ones that matter most? Well, the beautiful part comes in question four. How is Jesus the hero? How did he accomplish or do the thing we naturally resist? One of the, I mean, there's so many amazing things about the Gospels. One of the things that always stands out to me is the fact that when you see Jesus in the Gospels, you see the Son of God, the Word of God, who always was, is through him all things were made, coming to earth, and yet, and being 100% submissive to the Father. Completely submitting to the authority of the Father in his teachings. I mean, we, he lived a perfect life, meaning he completely followed every rule that God had ever laid out for him. He made the rules. <laughs> he was God. Yet, to submit to the Father, he's going to obey them completely. He goes to John the Baptist and asks to be baptized. And John's probably like, <laughs> you know, John's baptism was all the idea, was the whole idea was like repenting and, and saying you were going to turn away from your old way and, and go new. What did Jesus have to repent from? Nothing. And Jesus says, I'm gonna, we're doing this to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, I'm doing this to submit to my Father. And, and we know that's, that, that, that God, God affirms it, right, when he comes out of the water, saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And ultimately, we see him submitting to the authority of the Father through the cross. The night he's betrayed, he's there in the garden of Gethsemane pre- praying. And in his humanness, because he was completely man, as well as completely God. In his humanness, he, he's scared. 
because he knows what's about to happen. There's physical pain coming. There's physical suffering coming. There's mental anguish. There's emotional separation coming. Something he's never experienced. Separation from God, Father. And yet, even in then, in his prayers, not my will, but your will be done. How did Jesus accomplish the thing we naturally resist? We see it in the Gospels. Him completely submitting to the Father. Giving up his status for us. He's already God. He didn't need to do that. He chooses to submit to the Father. He does it for us. Jesus knew his purpose and he followed it completely. Even though it led him to ultimate suffering on our, on our behalf. And he did all of this with us in mind. And it's really important to understand that because as we talk about him accomplishing victory over sin, as we talk about he's the one who saved us, he's the one who called us, chose us, that has an implication. It means we are not our own, but his. means he chose us, called us, and is now sending us for a purpose. And that goes into question five. How does that empower me to obey what it says and mean? When we recognize this Jesus' authority behind the gospel, when we actually see that this is Jesus' words, this Jesus who came to this earth, demonstrated for us what true submission looks like, demonstrated what he would do for us, the extent that he went to for us, for our salvation, showed us his great love for us. We recognize that it's his authority behind the gospel. I hope and pray that that makes the gospel come alive in you even more, in your eyes. When you read scripture, what are you reading? Are you just reading something that you're just treating like every other subject that you've ever learned and taught about, thought of, or studied? I mean, is, is, in our minds, I think we naturally do this. We, you know, there's, you know, any way, anything that you've learned in life, there's math stuff that you knowledge here. There's your science knowledge here, you know, worldview knowledge here. And then there's your religion knowledge over here and what you know to be true about Jesus. Or do we see it for what it really is, which is this message, this gospel is something so powerful because it comes with the authority of Jesus that it overrides everything. It trumps all. And I think when we see that and we experience that, I think that does compel us. It does move us to wanting to give up our own selfish worldviews, our own goals and ambitions, and it compels us to want and recognize that this is the only thing that matters is how we respond to this gospel. What are we doing in response to that? I believe recognizing that Jesus is the true acting agent in our salvation, that we were chosen, called, and have a purpose. 
should lead us to obedience and a desire to serve him who rescues us, should lead us to a recognition that we are not our own. We are his. It should compel us to wanting to obey, not because oh, it's the rules and it's what I have to do, because we've been, we've been bought and paid for by, by the, through the blood of Christ. We have a savior, a hero, who suffered through all for us. We don't have a God, an impersonal God, who's looking down below us being like, all right, minions, this is all, all the stuff you got to do. Follow me. We have a personal God who loved us so much that he wasn't just content saying, okay, you got sacri- to gotta- sacrifice your lives for me. You got to give everything up for me. Just do it. And we said his own son, and he did it first. He laid it all down for us first. Demonstrated his love for us in that way. We're not laying down our lives for someone who doesn't understand what that means. We're laying it down our lives for Jesus Christ who knows exactly what that means because he did it. So I pray this week as you guys go out church that as you're consi- that you would ask yourselves, like, in what ways are my actions stating that I'm still the most important thing? What ways are, are, are my own teachings, are my own, my own view of things kind of conflicting and kind of making the gospel not be the most authoritative thing in my life? And I pray as you think about those things that you maybe need to work on and correct that you don't become discouraged. You don't just like, all right, all right, I'll try harder. I pray this week that you think of Jesus, that you look to him and look at his example for you. That motivates you. That it's not something motivated because Nathan says, this this is what you need to be doing. This is what Daniel thinks you need to be doing. This is what Will's been telling me what I got to be doing. It's not something done so that, like, you know, your, your gospel community will get off your back. Not something you're doing because, you know, you're, you know, okay, God, I'll do it for you. It's something done, motivated by the love for a Savior who's already demonstrated all that he would go through for you. All that he did go through for you. I would pray your motivation to surrender to the purpose that God has called you for comes from the love of Jesus and the way that he surrendered his life for you. Let's pray.